We'll be in John chapter 16 this evening as we continue our series on the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16. This time, if you have a Bible that perhaps has the words of Christ in red, you'll see this is now Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. But we'll be in John chapter 16. As you're turning there, I've got some questions I hope we'll, we'll come back to at the end of our message that I hope we'll answer in full, but I ask now to get our thoughts and our hearts stirring towards the text, and in the text of Scripture we'll be looking at, I hope we'll answer these questions, but we'll start with them on the outset of this message. Number one, how can we know that the Holy Spirit indwells us? Of course, we know that this is central to New Testament Christianity. It is central to our faith that God actually lives in those who believe in him, but how do we know for sure that God, the Holy Spirit, actually indwells in us? Number two, how can we wage war against the flesh? We could ask, do you have a fleshly nature? You felt that today? Maybe you have. Maybe you're just not willing to admit it. How can we wage war against the flesh? Number three, how can we be led by the Holy Spirit? How do we walk according to the Holy Spirit? Certainly, we talk with that kind of language. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Certainly, imagine that you, your, your presence here tonight it indicates that's your desire. But how do you really be led by the Holy Spirit? And fourthly, how does the Bible exercise authority in our lives? We believe in sola scriptura. There is our fidelity there in that belief. But how is it that we actually exercise this authority in our lives through the Word? Now, the answer to all of those questions relates to our topic on the Holy Spirit that we're in John chapter 16 this evening. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the Spirit's conviction and the work of conviction in our lives. When you think of the word conviction, I'm not sure exactly what comes into your mind. That term is often used in a legal context, referring to someone is guilty, you are convicted, there's also a political arena where the word conviction comes into play. I am convinced of my beliefs, but neither of those come to play in our subject this morning, or this evening rather. We're talking about the mission of the Holy Spirit. As the God, God gives us the Holy Spirit, what is it chiefly that the Holy Spirit is meant to do? Before we read that, let me kind of help gauge our thinking by way of illustration. I don't wear glasses. Now, perhaps I'm saying that for those that are listening to the recording, not for those that are looking at me right now. You know that. I don't wear glasses. I don't wear contacts either, which maybe you would not have known unless I told you. That doesn't mean that there aren't times that I don't need some kind of magnification to help me see better. Uh, for example, I'm a much better shot with a scope than without. Uh, we had, growing up, we, my mom had bird feeders in our backyard, and the squirrels also went to the bird feeders, and I had a 22, and uh, it was a long rifle, and I mounted a deer scope on that, and after a summer of that, there weren't squirrels in our neighborhood, and uh, that was almost unfair, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> but I, I want us to think in terms of, uh, and, and kind of illustrate in our minds, in terms of glasses or magnification as we come to our text of Scripture this evening. And I want you to hold that illustration, that picture in your mind, not of squirrels getting shot, but of, of glasses and magnification, because we're going to come back to it shortly, and I think you'll see why glasses or having a clearer picture is the way I want us to illustrate it. But let's read our text beginning in verse 7. We'll just read verse 7, and then we'll look at the other verses surrounding it in our message. It says in verse 7, Jesus speaking, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It is expedient for you, it is good for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, notice it's in capital letters C there, this is talking about the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him, that should really be a capital letter because it's still speaking about the Holy Spirit, unto you. We'll stop our reading right now in verse 7, though we'll be sequentially working our way through the other verses this evening. This is one of the most important statements in the Bible about the Holy Spirit, and it's now taken us seven messages to come to it. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit comes, he is being sent, it is good that Jesus leaves so that the Holy Spirit comes. That's interesting. Certainly the disciples seeing the resurrected Lord would have wanted him to stay. Jesus says, it is not good that I stay, it is better that I leave that the Holy Spirit will come. And here's what he will do, verse 8. When he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The word reprove is the word convict. There will be a conviction comes in. Now what does it mean when we say that the Holy Spirit will convict you? What is the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Perhaps you or someone else or a preacher has said, I'm under conviction. What is the nature of the conviction? Let me ask it another way. What is the Holy Spirit's job? Or as you see on the title, what is the mission of the Holy Spirit? We learn about the Holy Spirit is by understanding what he does. And it's to this point, we recall in your mind what we've learned so far. But now we specify by asking, what is the job of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit's role in the life of a believer is similar then to a good pair of glasses. It's going to help you see something. The Holy Spirit helps us see with spiritual eyes to reveal our problem of sin and find true sight in light of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He helps us see our problem of sin that we may clearly see Jesus, our Savior. This is the mission of the Holy Spirit. And because of the widespread confusion about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I think it's essential that we learn from our Lord as to what Jesus says the job description of the Holy Spirit is. Now, before we look at Christ's teaching here, I need to clear up one error that the Pentecostal movement has promoted, namely, that believers need to receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, you need to pray that the Holy Spirit would come after you're saved and kind of indwell you in a special way. And they base this mistaken interpretation on Paul's question to some followers of John the Baptist when Paul asks, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? That's in Acts 19, verse 2. But that teaching fails to recognize that the book of Acts is a transitional book from the Old Testament era to the era of the Holy Spirit. It's transitional from the sense that it's from the Old Testament to now the time of the church age. And Paul emphatically states in the book of Romans, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So when he is asking in this transitional book in the book of Acts, he's asking, are you saved? Not, have you received it, you're saved, but have you received this special kind of anointing that you need to pray for? He's asking, are you saved? Because in the Old Testament, this indwelling of the Spirit isn't like what it is now in the church age. Say, is there a for instance? Yeah, here's a for instance. Saul had the Spirit leave him. 
At one point it was with him, it left him. Can that happen in this new age, this New Testament age? The answer is no, for the same reason that you can say you can't lose your salvation. And so Paul says, as any man, if he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he's not saved. This means that receiving the Holy Spirit is not an experience you're supposed to have subsequent to salvation, as if to say, you know, you need to pray the Holy Spirit come down in you, because maybe you're lacking in that area. Rather, the Holy Spirit is God's gift to all who believe. The moment you get saved is the moment you get the Holy Spirit. Now, when you get the Holy Spirit, what does he do? They just kind of take up the insides, and now you're, you know, stamped in that way? What is it that he does? Number one, the mission of the Holy Spirit is Christological. We have to think of the mission of the Holy Spirit in terms of the Godhead. We're going to skip over a few verses for now. We're going to come back to them. But look at verse 13 of chapter 16. It says, How be it? When he, the Spirit of truth, is come. Now there's another designation for the Holy Spirit. We've already learned him referred to as the Comforter. Now he's referred to as the Spirit of truth. And notice one of the functions that is listed here in verse 13. He will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak of himself. He's not talking about himself. But whatsoever he will hear, that he will speak. And he will show you things to come. And notice the summary. What is all of this about? What is he doing? He shall glorify me, verse 14, Jesus is talking. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, that's Jesus, and he will show it unto you. In other words, the mission of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. That's why he came at Pentecost. He came at Pentecost to indwell God's people for the purpose of glorifying the Son. So we worship the true God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the amazing thing about our redemption is that God has chosen to bring us into the triunity fellowship we see in the Godhead. One of the messages earlier in this Holy Spirit series, we we looked at all like the t-shirts Jesus saves and things, and, and we said there's nothing wrong with them, they just aren't fully accurate. Because each member of the God has been involved in your salvation. The Father authors redemption, as we said earlier. The Son accomplishes redemption. And the Spirit applies redemption. So Christ shares himself with the believer through the Spirit. You have a relationship with Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. It's not on the screen, but I'll read it. It says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. How did John and the others he is writing to have this fellowship with God and the Son? Answer, according to Jesus' own words, through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent of this. The amazing thing is not that we are the center of the attention, but the triune God brings us into fellowship through the Spirit. You might say, I believe that, but what does that have to do with conviction? As we often talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and conviction sounds negative, but I'll go so far as to say it's actually positive. What's the connection? Think of it this way. If the Holy Spirit's mission is to declare Christ's glory, 
then everything the Holy Spirit does will be to accomplish that mission. So we're in the Gospel of John, and John throughout his book talks about truth. In fact, John will say, in fact, at the beginning of his letter, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how he starts his epistle, or his gospel, rather. And all throughout his gospel, he will write about, he's kind of the truth teller. Mark, we're in the gospel of Mark, it's going to talk about Jesus the servant king. Matthew will declare Jesus as the, the, the true king, uh, as far as the genealogy of the Jews. John is going to be the truth teller, and that's what we see even as John writes Revelation, and even First John and the likewise. And so the word came to dwell among us to teach truth concerning the Father. Then at the climactic moment of Jesus' life, when he was on trial, Jesus is a chance to tell Pilate who he is, what he is all about. And what does Jesus say? Using John's words, to this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto truth. So Jesus' mission, according to his own words, Jesus' mission is to be a truth teller. Jesus came to tell the truth. And the truth was about himself. He bore witness of himself that many others would know. And now in our passage, Jesus says, coming back to John 16, in light of the truth-telling mission of Jesus, Jesus says in John 16, it is better for me to live, or, or to leave rather, because when I leave, another truth-teller will come and he will continue on my truth-telling mission. And as he continues it on, this will glorify me. So after his resurrection, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and sends the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit trades places with Jesus in this mission. And therefore, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a work of the Spirit to point people to the truth that Jesus came to minister about. Listen to the designation again in John 16, verse 13. He is the Spirit of truth. This reminds us that we don't live in a world of therapy. The world is more and more about feelings. There is something undergirding us that is beyond and better than our feelings. And we may tend to think of conviction as, as emotion, but that's not what Scripture is writing it about. You might say, I'm under conviction, and what we're saying is, I'm feeling it emotionally. Now, there are certainly aspects of emotion, because you are all one. You are who you are. You can't unleash and unattach your spirit from your soul and your body. You are, so every aspect of you is going to feel that. You might feel that in your stomach, and many of you experience that, and, and as you sin, you get caught, you feel that way, but fundamentally, conviction is not emotionally driven. Conviction is not someone getting up and arousing a lot of emotion out of you or hyping it up out of you. Conviction is not someone hyping you up in a church service. Spiritual conviction is based on truth. And it is the truth of God's Word about the truth of Jesus Christ applied personally to your soul by the Spirit. We can't address conviction that we feel in our souls merely by trying to help us feel better. We want to feel better, but we can't deal with conviction in a way that kind of therapizes it. It's not about emotion, the work of the Holy Spirit. It's about truth. 
It's about God bringing truth to bear upon his son in your soul. Now read with me the next few verses in our text. And notice the aspect of Christ's work listed in verse 8. Here's what he'll do. He will reprove the world of sin. He will reprove the world of righteousness. He will reprove the world of judgment. That's his convictional work. And all throughout the book of John, you will find those three themes. Conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness, conviction of judgment. And you have all these people in the book coming to Jesus, asking questions and making accusations, and they are curious, they are skeptical, and the whole point is to bring truth to bear on a confused world. Well, there's a lot of applicational points you could make at this point. I mean, for one, it informs how we apply our preaching. I could, I, used, I generally used to speak a lot to children. And that, that became, I felt like it could be a dangerous thing. Because as a preacher, you can, you can convince a child to do almost anything, it feels like, after your message. Come forward, sign a Bible, whatever. And you can, you can get them to, you know, in VBS, say some kind of prayer. But it's not really based on truth. It's based on emotion. And I can emotionally manipulate a young audience pretty easily when I'm preaching to them. And that's wrong. And so there was a danger there. But the same danger could be true for adults just as it is for kids. Like I could, I could whip up an audience through all different manner of methods, musically or otherwise, to, to emotionally respond to something, but that doesn't make it true. So truth is based on the Word of God. So what informs the, the tenor of the, of the gathered saints? What are we aiming for? What are we working hard at? We're working hard at the, the Word of truth, which will glorify Christ, because that was Christ's mission. And think about it even in terms of what we learned about in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We saw Christ performing miracles, and Christ, well, he performed a lot of miracles. He chiefly did not come to be a miracle worker. He chiefly came to be a truth teller. He was a teacher. God had only one son, and he made him a teacher. And so the Holy Spirit is going to work that way. So not only is he going to be Christological, but that leads us into our second point. The Holy Spirit's mission is scriptural. How does he glorify Christ? It kind of sounds all mystical at this point. How's he going to get it to work? Look at verse 13. How be it, verse 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that he will speak, and he will show you things to come. He does guide believers into truth day by day, and it is through the word that man is convinced of his need for a Savior. The work of the Spirit has everything to do with the Bible, and specifically in this context, John is talking about the New Testament. The Spirit bore along people like the apostles. Those men wrote under the mighty arm of inspiration. The Spirit now uses those words convincingly to expose our sin and to point us to Jesus. And our flesh hates this process. We, we don't like what's going to happen. In fact, John would put it this way in John 3, verse 10, 20. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. We don't like this process. The Bible is like a spotlight. At, at, at one moment, the stage is pitch black, and the next, the light is turned up. And if you are standing there and the spotlight comes on you, you can't move, right? Everybody's eyes are on you. And that's what the Bible does. It's a spotlight to point to our sin and point us to Christ. 
19th century theologian put it this way, conscience may convince men of ordinary sins, but never the sin of unbelief. That's the work of God's word. And the work of the Holy Spirit is he turns the lights on in our souls in order to persuade our wills. I just have to pause here because much of this message is geared to believers, but I would not be doing what God called me to do if I did not pause and say there are some in this room who have maybe never experienced this kind of conviction because they've never been saved. And perhaps there are others in this room who you are praying for those who you know are not saved, and you wonder how can they come to a point where they are convinced of their sin and cry out to a Savior. Here's a novel idea. Give them the word again. Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? As the songwriter says, darkened soul, behold his glory, blinded eyes, receive your sight, sinner, leave your seat of darkness, rise and come to the light. It is through the word that man is convinced of his need of a Savior. And it is through the word that men are changed into the image of their Savior. The Spirit's work of truth-bearing and conviction does not end when you come to Christ. The Spirit ministers personally as your counselor inside you. Christ judged sin objectively at the cross. He was vindicated at the resurrection. And the Spirit now comes and indwells those who believe and ministers this same truth day by day into our lives. And notice what he does. He is our advocate. He defends us. He testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. But he is also our instructor in that he rebukes and corrects and equips us. And this word convict or reprove in verse 8, appears 17 times in the New Testament. I want to draw your attention to a couple of these because they speak to how the Spirit continues this ministry of conviction. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2 says, Preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, there's the word, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. In other words, the Spirit convicts His people. How does He do that? Well, the Bible says, through the preaching of His word. This word reprove also occurs in Matthew 18. In the context of a brother or sister admonishing one another, a sister or brother is sinning, and the Bible tells us in Matthew 18, you as a brother or sister go to that person who is sinning and uses that word reprove, correct. So how does the Holy Spirit work the work of conviction to change image bearers into the image of their Savior? Well, one is through preaching And the other is through personal one-on-one confrontation. When a brother or sister comes beside you and says that's wrong. So we could put it this way. The Holy Spirit accomplishes his conviction for believers through the twofold ministry of preaching and number two, the personal ministry of the word with your brothers and sisters pushing one another, iron sharpening iron. We We tend to think of the Spirit's influence I think, unfortunately, in terms of the biggest stuff that he accomplishes. Like, only the big things get our attention. And never the small changes that God still rejoices in. But actually, the Spirit's ministry is so powerful because it's so very personal. And sometimes when we look at the Spirit's ministry and we only look at the big stuff, we miss the personal stuff, and we miss the personal stuff, we're actually missing the big stuff. This, to me, is a lesson that some need to learn when considering revivals and the like. 
I don't know, I'm not speaking to what's going on at the Asbury Revival, I'm not there, I have no idea. I did find it interesting, I put this tweet because it's public, here's one person who said they traveled, 18 men packed into 15 passenger vans, traveled nine hours to pray for 30 minutes at the altar because that's where the Holy Spirit was in their mind. Now I don't question their, their honest effort to get with God, I, I, I believe that there was in their spirit, I hope, a desire to be close to God, but honestly, and this should be good news, and I'd love to tell that to these men, you don't have to travel nine hours to go meet the Holy Spirit. You could actually talk to the Holy Spirit right now, and you don't have to travel anywhere to find revival. That can start with you right now. Is the Holy Spirit closer in Asbury than he is here? Is there like a celestial portal that is opened up, that if you can go. I mean, that's one example. I saw other tweets of people that were saying like they were hoping to go there to catch the Holy Spirit, to bring him back to their church and then start a revival there. And I got a news for you. The Holy Spirit isn't COVID. You can't just <laughs> catch it and then just carry it around with you. We, we, we could also say that there's an, there is an ordinary means to the Holy Spirit, which is both exciting and mundane. You can speak to the Holy Spirit, and I don't mean mundane in the way that I'm trampling it down, but I think it's just in the main that, in the generic sense that you can have the Holy Spirit work in your life every day. It could just be part of who you are. God can speak to you every time the word is preached. That's awesome. God can speak to you every time the word is just read. God can speak to you every time you fellowship with other believers. That's why Proverbs speaks so much about wisdom being a response to reproof. We, we can't have wisdom if we don't respond to the reproof of the Spirit, which happens through His Word. And that's why I say sometimes we miss the real work of the Holy Spirit because we're looking for the big stuff. Using revival again, what is revival? It is any time a person comes to Christ whether saved or unsaved, and they respond and they come back and they're on fire for God. And that revival can happen with one or a hundred, but it's still revival. And I'd love for it to happen with a hundred. But I also should be just as excited about the one. I think sometimes we miss God's working in the small because we're looking for the big. And the mission of the Holy Spirit is Christological and it is, it is certainly scriptural, and lastly, the mission of the Holy Spirit is personal. There is a deeply personal application. Each point leads to the next. These are not parallel points standing one next to each other. They are just kind of all, just kind of push them all together. Because the, the Christological work of God is done through the Scripture, and it's always applied personally to you. The Holy Spirit is a personal being. Notice the you in our passage. Notice all the yous that are used there. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak, and he will show you the things to come. This is for you. He will glorify me, he will shave of mine, and shall show it unto you. All the things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said, he, said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. His work, though, can be resisted and opposed. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, verse 30, rather, says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. 
You can have pity on someone you know from a distance. But you can only grieve someone you know personally. You can only grieve someone that loves you. When I emphasize the personal relation of the Spirit, what I'm doing my best to emphasize is that the Holy Spirit wants you to have a close relationship with Him, with the God, the Father, with Jesus. And the Bible says the Father chastens His children and sent His Spirit to dwell in us because He loves us. And if you are experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that is actually a sign of God's love for you. That warning light is a good thing. Hebrews 12, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Parents don't discipline their children because they hate them. I hope that's not true. If that's true, then there's another problem. Parents tell their children don't play in the street because they love them. Do you think that the scripture says in vain? This is James 4, verse 7. The Spirit dwelleth in us, lusts to envy. The the idea is that the Spirit is jealously desirous of you. The example, the best example could be like of of a husband or a wife who is rightly jealous of their spouse. They they want that one relationship to be the key relationship. Do you think that the Spirit is, the Scripture is in vain, in other words, empty, void, when it tells you that the Spirit desires, is jealous of your attention? The truth of the Spirit's work is to you then a specific person. It's to you, it's to me. And so 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 7 says, quench not the Spirit. The word quench really carries the idea of dousing. It refers to putting a fire out. You you can't do away with the Holy Spirit in the same sense that you can't lose your salvation. But you can certainly throw cold water on the Holy Spirit. Again, coming back to the grieve passage, it says, grieve not the Holy Spirit, where where he says in Ephesians 4, verse 30, whereby you are sealed unto the day of salvation. There's an understanding that you are sealed. You can't lose your salvation, but you can certainly quench the Spirit. Bunyan, of course, is the one who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Apparently when he wrote it, it was so good, there were people during his time that thought he plagiarized his work. And so as a response, to prove that he hadn't plagiarized, he wrote another book called The Holy War. And The Holy War is interesting in its own right. Maybe you've read it, maybe perhaps you have not. And, but in the book, there's a bunch of townspeople, and they have all these walls, and there's, similar to Pilgrim's Progress, there's all these allegories making a point. But In the book, there's one character called Mr. Conscience. And Mr. Conscience is aptly the town crier. I also appreciate John Bunyan's allegories because it's not hard to guess who he's talking about. I mean, Christian in Pilgrim's Progress is called Christian, right? And Mr. Conscience is called Mr. Conscience. The conscience is Mr. Conscience. But he's aptly the town crier. His, his, his job is to cry out when things are going wrong, and when the people begin to behave wrongly, he, he makes a big fuss about that. He, he's the town crier. He's very loud about it. And that, of course, bothers those who want to do the thing he's telling them not to do. And so as the story progresses, they, he, they put Mr. Conscience further and further inside the rooms of the walls there until eventually he's still crying, he is still there, but you can't hear him as much. Is it, is it possible that there are believers that 
have lost a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. So now they're asking, like, I don't hear him. I, I don't really get this sense. Like, I know I'm saved, but I don't, I don't get that same feeling, perhaps. And you're just basing it purely on emotion, which isn't correct. But at the same time, there is no emotion, which could be problematic. And you know it's true in your own life. When you do something wrong, the first time may be the hardest time to do it. The second time is easier. And the third time, you might not even be thinking it's wrong anymore. So, Paul says to the Thessalonians and the Ephesians. To the Ephesians, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The idea is, he loves you enough that you can grieve him, personally. And to the Thessalonians, he says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. The idea is, he can be a fire within your belly telling you don't, and you can just douse him with water. So I come back to our questions as we've explored the mission of the Holy Spirit. Number one, how can we know the Holy Spirit indwells us? But one of the ways we know is that he is working in us to convince us of truth and change us. That's how we can know. He is convincing us of truth, which will result in changes in our lives. Praise the Lord, you can hopefully look back at your life and say, I am not the same person I was years before because God's Spirit works in me. And how can we wage war against our flesh? Well, it's by responding to his work in us as he points us to Christ and away from sin. That's how he wage war. And it's by picking up the tools that the Spirit has given to us, namely the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That, that is a sharp, powerful, two-edged sword, the Bible says. So how am I going to wage war? Well, you're not going to wage war against your flesh if you don't have the Spirit of God through the truth of God's Word in your life. It just won't work. It's like going to battle without your sword. Good luck. And, and how are we led by the Holy Spirit? We have to make sure we are following His will and not our own. And certainly that involves not our feelings. Because if truth is to be our guide, feelings can often get in the way. I had a professor once that, that exam, kind of typified our, our, our decision-making almost like a train. So at the front of that train needs to be God's word and God's commands, and then that's followed up by God's applicational precepts and principles. But the emotions always take up the caboose. He said for two things about it. Number one, emotions are not bad. They are part of your life. God wants you to have emotions. Jesus had emotions. So you don't unhitch the caboose. You need the caboose. But number two, it's a caboose. It makes for a very bad engine. If your emotions are driving the engine, there's a problem there. So we are following his will, not our will. That's how we are led by the Spirit. And how does the Bible exercise authority in our lives? It's when we respond to this preaching of God's word, reading of God's word, study of God's word, and our response is one of humility, confession, and repentance. That's how we exercise authority. It's not that we just say, the Bible's awesome and I'm going to read it. It's, the Bible's awesome, I'm going to read it and I'm going to apply it. And there is a difference there. So what is the Holy Spirit's job? Well, the Holy Spirit facilitates our fellowship with the triune God. And some of us are miserable because we are really out of fellowship. 
And ultimately, that's the mission of the Spirit, to bring us positionally into Christ, to glorify Christ, to point us to Scripture, and personally say, you need to do this. So the questions are, will we submit to the Spirit? That's His job. I pray that you will. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the work of the Holy Spirit, the mission of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, so often we look at all the different ways in which God's at work, and we forget that God is at work primarily through His Word, through His Spirit. And this doesn't have to become mystical. It can happen right there in our own quiet studies tomorrow morning as we open God's Word and have devotions with You. Lord, we pray that we would not miss the little because we're searching for the big, that we would stay true to Your Word.